0: know we're, we're a little bit later than usual, so I'm going to move pretty quickly, but, but I want to talk, and this was kind of um, kind of divine providence, the, the concept of freedom in light of the week of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We can probably all remember where we were. I was a, I was a 19, almost 20-year-old uh, playing basketball in Norway, or I, as I call it, the NBA, the Norwegian Basketball Association, and, and so some of the details aren't necessary if I'm in the right setting. I just played a year in the NBA, no big deal. So, so I, I was over there, and it was my first um, month, actually, away from home, living abroad for the first time. And it was probably the most pivotal moment in my life where I started processing things on a global scale, things like freedom. And I think this week, um, whenever we pause in a, in a moment like 9-11, the concept of freedom gets brought to the surface. And at the same time, it's usually some measure, some form of freedom that isn't first and foremost, at least culturally. It's not brought into to view from, from how God defines freedom. So that's, that's kind of the mindset today. I have a couple thoughts that I, I want to, to share from a guy named Mark Sayers, who's an Australian, who's a pastor and author. And, and he says this, um, freedom at the expense of meaning. He says the West is based, and he wrote this before COVID in 2019. The West is based on a belief that as individuals, Uh, are given freedom we will flourish if we're given freedom we'll flourish there is truth in this idea for it grew at a time in history when most people lived under controlling forms of social political and religious control humans are happy when we are free but we also need other things to flourish he says such as meaning and deep relational connections humans need to know that what we are doing counts that there is more significant purpose to our lives that our decisions and our direction matter. And he says this, we need reserves in our lives, reserves. He almost talks about buckets. Like if there's a big tank, we need a tank of freedom, we need a tank of relationship, and we need a tank of meaning. And these reserves need to be balanced with each other. And they're, they're systematically connected to our lives. And, and if we have too much uh, re- relational uh, dynamics, and our individualism may then end up being compromised. So if our, our relational bank, our pool, our tank is, is overflowing, our, our freedom might be compromised. The individual who's unable to make any personal choices to have individual thought or to express differing opinion will find that the quality of their life suffers. The West... The West, the culture we live in, it maximizes concepts of freedom, reacting to the rise of totalitarian regimes like communism and Nazism in the 20th century. One of the great fears of the West was to re-emerge, Was the reemergence of a kind of culture that elevates the rights of the group and enforced codes of meaning upon others at the expense of their individual freedom. We can feel that in America, maybe in ways that others can't. And he points out, as an Australian, if you know what's happening in Australia right now, uh, their freedoms are, are, being, are being kind of touched on in the same way that ours are, and yet some of the dynamics that are happening there are a little bit more extreme than America. And America, is, we're showing some of the ways that we tolerate certain aspects related to freedom. That's not what my message is about. I just want you to point out that regardless of COVID and what's happening right now, this is a reality in the world. Freedom is a constant reality. How do you define freedom? What do you allow to set what freedom looks like? And how it is the defining factor of what the story of the West says is the most important thing about life to pursue happiness. The West believes, the story of Western culture is that we will be happier as our freedom increases. The issue is the kind of freedom we're talking about. So what's happened? The political right has pushed forward with the project of freedom, seeing salvation. The, again, the political right, this is a global political right. See if this resonates. It's not my opinion if you're offended at anything, okay? <laughs> the political right has pushed forward with the project of freedom, seeing salvation and the expansion Of individual rights, looking to free markets unleashed uh, from government control and restraints. Many on the left were rightly concerned, seeing the trajectory as creating a kind of mutant hyper-capitalism, mammon on steroids, they might say, in which the unbridled pursuit of profit undermined community, relationships, and cultures. What happens then is the left is engaged in their own project of expanding freedom, seeing the enemy of freedom in the traditions, structures, and inherited wisdom of the West, viewing the entire structure of the West as oppressive. They continued their great project of deconstructing pre-existing norms, such as family, sexuality, gender, language, and culture, the foundational containers in which people found place and meaning. Many on the right were appalled by this. And as this project gained pace, seeing little nuance between its approach of rooting out genuine oppression and injustice in what seemed like an indiscriminate carpet bombing of the West's achievements and an endless search to discover or even create new victims and sources of oppression. Is that a mouthful and enough for you? Scroll to the slide if you haven't yet that, that um, has the kind of picture of the bubbles. if you find that, right there's a bubble picture. There you go. There's a bubble picture. A little blurry. But it basically says... On the left is this cultural deconstruction. On the right is this digital capitalism. And in the middle, you probably can't see it. It says, regardless, both are pursuing their version of freedom. They're both pursuing freedom. In the middle is loneliness, paralysis, tribalism, fear, and anxiety. So the point isn't to justify one side or the other. The point is, is that in the West, it doesn't matter if you're on the left or if you're on the right you still have an end goal of individualistic freedom. And the result is loneliness, paralysis, tribalism, fear, and anxiety. If you didn't hear a thing I said, let that sink in. And then this, we are drowning in freedoms, but we're thirsting for meaning. The research says one thing, we're drowning in our freedoms, but we're thirsty for meaning. Even now, while there may be legitimate threats on certain freedoms, our focus can become on freedom itself because we've been placed in a place where meaning is on being free. And we've forgotten the wisdom that to find happiness and fulfillment, we sometimes need to reduce our freedom to gain meaning in relationships. And I'm not talking about reducing America's freedom. I'm talking about the reality in the kingdom is we enter into a covenant where this love relationship means I'm going to limit my other loves so I can love the first thing first. That is how you limit a freedom. And that's the tension that I live with in the midst of a world that's arguing about how to pursue freedom. And what's often missed is what God has already put before us in this concept of covenant love and pursuing Him, and we miss the barometer that's meant to guide us when we step into the tensions of a culture war. We're obsessed with freedom. So I just want to go back, and for those that are just jumping in, we're in a series on purpose, 40 days of purpose, or six weeks of the series on purpose. And the first question is, what's my purpose? And we're generally answering answering that with three dynamics. My purpose is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus does, Worship, discipleship, and mission—that ultimately gets at the core of what the church is and what the people that can, that are part of Jesus' body are. That's our purpose in life. But the second question is, why I have to have certain things? And the reality is, is that the concept of purpose brings up a reality that we need a meaning in life. We need satisfaction. We need freedom, identity, and hope. And that's what much of our Sunday mornings have been focusing on. Last week was satisfaction. The week before that was meaning. And then we're trying to filter some of these things by being real with what humanity knows that their needs are. The, the needs of the Spirit are, are growth and connection. But we have other physical type of needs. We have the need for certainty and uncertainty. We have a need for, for, for significance, for love and connection. And then, and then we can move on to the needs of the Spirit, the need for, for growth and contribution. But if we don't filter that through how Jesus sets a standard for identity, for hope, for significance, for meaning and satisfaction, we're going to continually churn our lives pursuing something that is never going to fulfill us. So today's subject is freedom. How is freedom lying to us with a partially true story that needs to be exposed and then reoriented? Okay. Fair? On the same page. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the lie of freedom how it lies to your purpose, and how true freedom reshapes your purpose. And I want to give a few examples. I've been utilizing some kind of cherry-picking some of the examples that, that Keller gives in his book Making Sense of God. If there's one book that I'd recommend reading that gets on some of the things I've been talking about, it would be that book, Making Sense of God. And, and he gives an example of, of uh, a study by Ellen Ehrenholt in, uh, in 1950 Chicago that says this, most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident that they scarcely need to be said. Okay, so what are they? He says choice is a good thing in life. America, we love our choice. We don't want just one kind of milk. We want 4,322 kinds of milk, several kinds of almond milk, several kinds of oat milk. Oh, there's cows that still make milk? That's good to know. Okay, there's 20 options of that as well. It just depends what story you're in, and it, it boggles my mind the choice that we have just for little practical things. And when you live in a major city, the choice becomes even more endless. But we ultimately have choice because we believe choice is good. Choice is a good thing, and the more of it we have, the happier we are, we think. Authority is inherently suspect in the West. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to think or how to behave. That's the study. And then he says this, these are things everyone knows and cannot be questioned. That was in the 1950s, post-World War II. So that's the world that we've been living in for all of our lives and our parents' lifetime. And maybe you are the parents, and that was half of your parents' lifetime. And so what we have is freedom becoming the only heroic story that we have left. And that giving individuals freedom is the main role of any institution and society itself. It's the baseline cultural narrative of the West and the enemy, then, of the cultural narrative, of the story that everyone is living under, is Christianity. So that's kind of the problem we're confronting, is that people can see Christianity as a bit of a problem, because that's not the Christian story. The Christian story is that God's trying to tell me what to do with my life. And so uh, Keller gives this example where, where there's this um, Columbia professor, Mark Lilla, and it's called, I call this the Nicodemus problem. And so he gives this example uh, as, as he was a guy uh, growing up that he almost said yes to this, to this following Jesus concept. And at one point, uh, as a professor, he ran into this student at, at Wharton School of Business, which is like one of the highest um, prestigious schools. And he, he runs into this guy who's, who's a Wharton grad who professed to being this born-again Christian. We all know these days, like born-again is kind of a trigger for a lot of people. And, and it triggered this professor, and he goes, you know, as a teen, I flirted with Christianity until I read of Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. And so, uh, if, you go, if you go to that story uh, in, in John 3, that's, that's, this, that's the subject line of when you get to like, the most famous Christian slogan, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we, we, we put that on our faces, and we put that up on games, and we fly that on the freeways as if I, people are getting saved by reading John 3.16, and I have no problem with it, but sometimes the people that are waving it around just come across a little obnoxious. Sometimes they're not. Maybe that was you. Maybe you had the best heart ever. Uh, that's not even my point. That's not on my notes. I'm just like, that's an aside of just how I feel sometimes as people are trying to like I'll wave a flag, but I won't love you, uh, but that's annoying if that's the case. But that's not always the case, and I just feel like i got to backtrack now because, again, not on my notes, and I'm sure 85% of the time it's by the most loving, wonderful people. And John 3.16 the point, though, is that John 3.16 is an unbelievable verse. The reason why is because in that verse, you have the beauty of the entire message of the gospel is that God isn't judging you, hating you, and wrath-filled coming at you to destroy you if you don't repent. It's that God comes out of love. We have the right verse. Even if it comes across obnoxiously or whatever else, we actually have the right verse. And it's the subject is that God loves but what was so interesting is that that professor didn't, didn't, didn't say anything about that verse. What happens before that verse is this exchange with Jesus and Nicodemus, who's a rabbi. And he comes to Jesus, and, G- and he's, he's questioning this way of, of, of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again, and gives this concept that today we all have some measure of understanding of what that means. But, but to Nicodemus, who was an example of the most well-read, highest level of education, and a leader of the, the religious order, he has no concept for what this means, and him and Jesus have this exchange, and Jesus kind of lets him sit there with the tension of having no clue what it means to be born again. I mean, he literally goes, how is it that I can be birthed again from my mother's womb? Like, he has that kind… It's like literally Jesus lets people think directly the words coming out of his mouth is what he means. And this happens over and over again. He says things like, drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they're like, how am I going to do that? We're not vampires. That's legitimately the translation of what it means when, when Jesus says some of these things to people. He lets them sit in the tension. And so going back to this professor, Lilla, he goes, Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus. Again, this is a guy that rejected faith in Jesus. Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that he must recognize his own insufficiency that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. I'm sitting there going like, "Uh, he's on the right track, actually, sort of. And then this is his summation. He goes, that seems like a radical challenge to our freedom. (laughs) And it is. And that's the reason he couldn't follow Jesus. He summarizes the entire reason, the drawback to Jesus is freedom. Now I wonder, most of us in the room, we've said yes to Jesus in some way. We've, we've said yes to him taking the reins of our freedom. But we wrestle daily with concepts of our, of our rights and what the fullness of what freedom in Jesus looks like. Every day. And so what I want to ask us is maybe you're not the professor that's rejected Jesus completely because of a Nicodemus, but we're still wrestling with what does it mean to be truly free and what does it mean to live in, the, in a culture that's constantly pursuing a concept of freedom and even justice gets brought into the concept of freedom and we know that Jesus is for those things. He is for freedom, for freedom that Christ set us free. He's not anti-freedom. But the question is, does Christianity limit our freedom? And do we have to choose freedom and faith? Or freedom or faith? Or only freedom or only faith? And another example that's given in this book is, has anyone seen the movie Calvary? I actually have not seen the movie Calvary. No, nobody, and this is LA. Okay, so apparently it wasn't that popular of a film. Here's what happens in the film. I get to set the stage then. There's, a, there's a, a Catholic priest who became a Catholic priest later in life. And so he has a daughter uh, from earlier in life. And so he has this exchange with his daughter because she has attempted to commit suicide. Obviously it didn't work. And they're wrestling with this. And as he's trying to comfort her, her response to him is, I belong to myself, not to anyone else. Stop. What is she saying? She's saying everything that we've been told our whole lives. My life is mine. I have to make something of my life. I can take my life. I can pursue something. If I don't see any point, it's mine to decide whether I live or die. And who is it to you? What, you my dad? Who are you to say that you can tell me what to do, what's right or wrong? But her father's response is, is really the whole point. of of the message, and his response is, true. And he pauses, and he says, false. What's he saying? He's saying, there is some truth in what you're saying about freedom, but if you define it the way that you do, it's ultimately false. The idea of freedom in society has done endless good. We all know that. That's true. But ultimately, There's a falseness in this definition because freedom has come to be defined as the absence of any limitations, the absence of any constraints on us at all. And I I want to present to us three reasons that are given in, in, in this book that I'm summarizing, hopefully, that we can kind of take with us, that are memorable. Three reasons why this idea of freedom has some truth but is ultimately lying to us. Number one is this, complexity. Number two is is going to be a concept of that there's a slavery that we can't see in ourselves. And number three is how Jesus steps into this reality. So number one, the complexity. The complexity looks like this. Okay, so maybe there's some of you that can relate to some of this. So imagine a, a parent or a grandparent or whatever else that you like to eat. How many of you like to eat? We all like to eat. I talk about food a lot because I like to eat. And I like to eat some things that aren't good for me. And there may come a time in my life. And, and I know a lot of you, because you go to these kinds of, of people that are trying to help you with your, your health and your diet and so forth, where you've been told by a physician, you need to stop eating this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And you can now eat this, or whatever it is that happens. Why? For your health. Because your body was designed to heal. And if you give it to right fuel, it will heal from the stuff that's hurting it. I mean, that's generic, I mean, I'm not an expert in these things, but it's, it's kind of what happens. And what I hear from people as you're telling what you can't and can't and can't eat, I'm hearing, like, the happiness of your life just being whisked away of all these things. I'm like, well, there went that amount of happiness in my life if that was me, and there went happiness. Cheese? Seriously? All of it? Like, I mean, gone. I mean, like, that's, that's like 30% of the happiness of my life is cheese. <laughs> and half of you can't eat it. This is how I wrestle with freedom. It, but the reality is, yeah, you're free to keep eating that if, if you want to feel miserable and ultimately your gut lining is going to be uh, reduced and you're going to become a whatever. And, and, and the reality is, is that you have the freedom then to choose what is your highest desire. Is your highest desire your satisfaction in the food? Or do you want to live a long and healthy life so you can see your grandkids grow up and you can actually play with them? Maybe a vast generalization. It's not like it's just cheese or grandkids, but I mean, maybe if that's what you need to remember. Point number one, cheese or grandkids. You are not your desires. We have to, regardless of the amount of freedom we're given, we have to decide which of our desires will really liberate us. Will your desire for cheese liberate you? Or your desire to see your next generation, your offspring, or your loved ones, or the the purpose that you've been put on this planet for. I need to be healthy. I need to commit to this. So I'm saying no to this so I can say yes to this. Why? Because ultimately, we aren't our desires. What we ultimately will be is what we have stepped into in terms of the desires that actually set us free. Because some desires will not set you free and some will, and some of them are good. But to say yes to the things that really matter, you have to say no to some things. Every person that has gone to school has said yes to a social life for a certain amount of time. Everyone that has said yes to, to, uh, to some kind of covenant, whether you have joined some kind of society or you said yes to one job because you have to say no to all the other jobs, you're committed to that one. If you're in a marriage, you've said yes to that person and, every, and no to everybody else. We understand that we limit aspects of desire all the time. Why? for reasons, for purpose, for directives, for liberation. Freedom is not unlimited choice. And that's a lie. So the issue is discerning our desires. Which of my desires is liberating? Can we trust all our desires? No. You cannot trust all your desires. And the ultimate problem of the world defining freedom as no constraints is that you can't experience love that way. A loving relationship is the complexity of freedom. Freedom is complex. To understand the complexity of freedom, you just have to understand how love works. Out of love, we'll do unbelievable things that we would never do otherwise. Unbelievable things. Some of you would do more than others. When Sue and I were dating, I would do unbelievable things. I mean, the way I proposed to her, it's like we could write a book and you would all cry and it would be beautiful and I'd be stood on this pedestal. And But if you looked at my roommate, Seth, at the time, all of a sudden, I would look like about just like this. Because Seth was a psychopath that would wake up at like 3 in the morning to drive down to his girlfriend Kelly's that lived with Sue and would drive her to work. He worked, she worked for some kind of like East Coast thing. And she had to be at work at 3 a.m. And he'd walk her to work at 3 a.m., drive all the way back to North Coast San Diego, sleep for another 10 minutes, and then go back to his job. And then he'd, like, write poems and poetry to her all day that would send to her and have people deliver it to her. And I'm just getting started on Seth, the psychopath Seth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my point is, you can always compare. But a love relationship will teach you what you're willing to do, what you're willing to sacrifice, what you're willing to kind of forge ahead through for the purposes of love. Love will limit your desires. So freedom is complex. And number two, There's a slavery that we can't see in ourselves. Jesus talks about this in John 8. He says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he's talking about truth and freedom. Uh, This is not a a deep dive into this passage. But then they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Of course, these are Jews that had been slaves. But there was a Jewish concept that because we had never lost our Jewish identity— We've never lost the concept of worshiping God. Therefore, we've never been slaves of anyone. That, that's pretty cool, actually. The Jewish story starts in slavery, but they do not define themselves as slaves. We've never been slaves of anyone. The whole family started in slavery. We've never been slaves of anyone. Why? Because they can't tell us who we can worship, and we've never lost the identity of our family that we worship the one true God. That's pretty cool. Anyway, that wasn't even the message, but that, that's, the Jewish, that's the Jewish context. So Jesus replies to them about, how can you say that we shall be set free? And he says, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So, but he's basically calling, everyone knows we've sinned, so he's saying that there's a slavery that happens. So he's, he's using this theme that Israel has, has constantly been wrestling with, this concept of slavery and who you are, identity and sonship, daughtership, and all these things. And, and Jesus is not being political here. In the midst of the most politically charged environment that Israel had ever been in, because they are living under a thousand-year reign of Roman rule. If you think that we live in a tense time, Jesus entered in at the potentially the most tense time he could have possibly been in. The Roman Empire. And they're trying to figure out how to be Jews in the midst of this. And there's still this religious system. And he's, and he's, he's telling them, here's how slavery works. So an, an example would be something like this. Um, my, my kids, we love to go to New Mexico. Uh, other grandparents live there. Um, they love their grandparents here. They're sitting over there. But in New Mexico, they live on a dirt road. And so what happens when you get grandkids on a dirt road, you can let them drive the truck or whatever, right? So even at, like, ages three and four, they've been kind of moving around and, and driving that. And, and honestly, like, it's fine. and It's cute. But I do get images of just, like, they're going to think that that's fine. And that someday, they're going to get into a truck, and this is going to be bad. That's just fear. Just, just, like, gripping the father's heart. My father. Me as a father. And, and I have these images. And, and slightly little nightmares about it. And, but the point is, is, is just imagine like a three or four-year-old uh, driving a, a truck, you know, down a hill in the desert. And, and that's not a comforting thought. Why? That truck was not designed for four-year-olds. That's it. It's just not designed for four-year-olds. I, I, I drove boats one summer as a camp counselor, as a 20-year-old. And, and I don't think that boat was designed for camp counselors at the age of 20 to, 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 be, to be driving nine-year-olds around because when the nine-year-old taunts me that I can't knock him off the, the raft, I can knock him off the raft. I can actually make him flop like a fish for a long time. And that was super dangerous and I can't believe there were no lawsuits out of that. I don't think those boats were made for 20-year-old college students. The point is, there's a design for every mechanism, every boat, car, ship, plane, there's a design. And it's definitely not designed for three-year-olds, and it might not be designed for me or anyone else, uh, but it is designed for someone that has been, that, that, that is mature, and that knows how to handle what has been given in the machine. A car is designed with the mindset of a designer. If we have been designed, we have been designed for a specific purpose and purposes— and to redefine what that purpose is doesn't make sense. The world, however, is stuck with this mentality of, of this overarching view that there is no God that gives design. And therefore, to find purpose, I have to figure out what my purpose is. This is where we can soften our hearts and realize this doesn't come from an a, a immediate desire for evil. It comes from a lack of belief in seeing and encountering a living, loving God. If we start from the fact that they want this, the world wants this kind of God, and we stop arguing that you're stupid because you're redefining purpose, that's not going to get anywhere. You introduce them to their Father that loves them, that designed them, that created them connect them to a loving relationship and then let them see what they were created for let them see the design of the designer and let your life shine an example of what that looks like this is the concepts of what we're talking about in this setting to break your design is to actually lose your freedom that's the concept i want to get at to break your design is to lose your freedom how does that work in the kingdom it works like this if you refuse to forgive You've broken your freedom. Why? Because when, I, when I've been designed to forgive, forgiveness alleviates me of burdens. It actually sets me free. To withhold forgiveness, that's why God gives it as a command, not out of, not out of guilt, shame, and judgment, but out of freedom, because he's designed you to forgive. Because in forgiveness, you unleash what the person that harmed you, either intentionally or unintentionally, brought for harm. So we forgive because it's how we were designed to function. And it feels like, well, I I want to be free to not forgive. Well, you are. And that's how it works in the kingdom. You're free to live under the way that you were created and designed, or you're free not to. But the reality is, is that when you step into saying, this is who I am, This is my identity. This is my father. He's my designer. Then I realized, oh, that's a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. And just one example. If a son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's what Jesus ends up saying. His whole argument then is that Jesus is saying, I am a son. I am part of God. I am part of the family of God. I have an inheritance and identity that is part of him. Therefore, I can give freedom. And the whole concept here is under the, the, the reality of inheritance and non-inheritance, slave and free. So Keller gives this example of Downton Abbey. I know a few of you have watched it. I can't get through it. But in that show, everyone lives in this big mansion in Old England, right? And, and it's, it's like obnoxiously wonderful, as you would think it would be, where, where, where it's like the cool accents live in the basement and the obnoxious accents live upstairs. And, and they're all, you know, they... they Pretend like they're all one family, but there's not one family. there's the family that has an inheritance, and then there's the servants, those that, that have a transactional relationship with the master, with the father. And it doesn't matter how much the master still cares for them. Ultimately, they can break trust, they can break the relationship, they can screw up, and they're gone. Even with a good master, they doesn't want to let them go. Oftentimes you see the tensions that happen, and they're on their own. There's no inheritance. It's a transactional relationship. Meanwhile, the inheritance, the sons and daughters that are part of the family, so they cannot do a thing to keep them from being part of that family. Everyone who thinks of God as a boss is ultimately a slave. It's transactional. You obey rules for the transaction and not out of love. So how do you treat God? He's offering a love It's not been perverted by the kind of freedom of the world. And finally, number three, how can Jesus actually set us free? Uh, You might still think that that the view of figuring out freedom and what works for you is best, or you're at least aware that there's some measure of us having to navigate freedom in our own minds. But here's what I want us to do. There's there's this um, atheist, actually, named David Foster Wallace, who's passed away now. But he gave this concept, and this is how I want to tie this back to worship worship discipleship mission last week was was on the concept of satisfaction in worship this week is on freedom and it's because satisfaction and freedom ultimately tap in to what happens when we become a people that worship that are with him that spend time in his presence when we spend time in his presence it reshapes our priorities when our priorities are reshaped we understand how freedom works and we understand how satisfaction works So I want to close with this. He says this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to to show, you will die a million deaths before finally it plants you. If you worship power, you still end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over other people to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. That's worship. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Whatever you live for, that's worship. That's your master. And you don't really belong to yourself. You belong to that. That's the lie of freedom. That's the lie of freedom. Jesus says this, I'm the only Lord and master that if you get me, I'll satisfy you. But if you fail me, I can forgive you. Jesus is the only master that promises that if you get me, I will satisfy you. But if you fail me, I will forgive you. Again, how is this possible? It's because everything he's done is out of love. And some of us need to hear this again. He loves you. Sometimes I try to think of really deep, heavy things to say. And sometimes the only thing that we need to hear is that God loves you. Because the reality is many of us don't believe it. We know it. We can't feel it. And the gospel is that God loves you. He came to you. He adjusts for you. He gave up his freedom for you. If you start your pursuit of freedom going back to the place that he loves you, he gave up his freedom for you, how are you going to respond with a life that demonstrates freedom in kind? How are you going to sit with the tensions of your own life? How are you going to sit with the tensions of a culture that is pulling you towards things that are anything but this kind of freedom? How are you going to live a life? How are you going to look the people that you are investing in in the face and say, this is what I live my life for. This is the Jesus I follow. How do you define him? What does it look like? How does the way of Jesus reorient you towards the way of the world? How does the freedom That everyone can agree on, from the left and the right, from the kingdom to the earth. We can all agree on freedom, but what kind of freedom? Where has freedom lied to you? Where has freedom been perverted in your life? And let's not leave today without a fresh dose of His love, meeting you, encountering you, restoring you. Why don't you stand? If I could have someone uh, on, the, on the keys or however you guys are planning to do today. I've got, uh, we're going to be done, but I, I want to give the opportunity for communion today. So there's a, there's a bucket there, and there's going to be a bucket over here. And if the ministry team could come up, I, uh, I want to invite us to respond with three things. Three simple things. The testimony had had a bit of the heart of repentance in it, but I want us to start with repentance of our own lives. Repent for how you've treated God like your boss and not your father that loves you. How have you treated him like a boss? Transactional. If I do this, God, then will you do this? If I'm faithful here, then will you do this? If I wait, if I'm good, if I give, if I this, if I this, if I this, how has the way of the world distorted your view of the Father? Repent in some way for looking at God as a boss and not a loving Father. Second, take a moment and give thanks in your own spirit. For every bad example that you've ever seen in the church or in the kingdom, I know that every single one of you, have a person that has showed you the love of God in your life. Maybe that was a grandmother. Maybe that was a parent. Maybe that was a friend or a roommate. Maybe that was someone on the street. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was someone at church. Every single one of you have a story. The reason why you're here right now is because someone gave you some taste of the love of God in your life. Give thanks for that life right now in Jesus' name. Join me in giving thanks for the lives that showed you the love of the Father. Despite their own issues, their own imperfections, you are sitting here because you have experienced some kind of love that is not defined by the world, some kind of freedom that is not defined by the world, some kind of taste of Jesus that cannot be explained with the ways of the world. You are here because of love, and you are here because of freedom that is not purchased because of anything you've done. You have a master that has taken his freedom, set it aside, and he's pursued you because he loves you. And give thanks for the people, even if it's just one person that has shown you that kind of love. Fixate your entire being this morning on that. We are sorry for how we've treated you as a boss, Father God, and not as he who loves us as a dad. And we thank you for the people you've put in our lives that show us what you're like. And finally, just fall in love again. Just fall in love again. Make the pursuit of your life to fall in love. We will be a people that don't just say that the gospel is just love. We say the gospel is this kind of love. That love came, put freedom aside, died for your sin, guilt, and shame, and covers you completely if you will say yes to giving him everything. That kind of love. Fall in love again. (laughs) Receive that as an exclamation mark.